You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. We're so thankful for who you are, God. We're so thankful that you love us, that you care about us, that you saved us from the sin that we were in, that you rescued us and brought us into fellowship and relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect obedience. Lord, help us, his life to be an example for ours so that we can walk in obedience, Lord, out of a love to you, out of a love for you, that we love you greatly, we thank you greatly. And it's because of the goodness of Jesus that we can pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Go ahead and sit down. Take a seat. After, um, so over the last few weeks, uh, we have uh, taken a journey through uh, Solomon's hedonistic experiment. If you remember, he was going through and he was trying things and trying things. Uh, Solomon sought out all the pleasures of this world, right? Everything that he could have wanted to experience, he did. Uh, if he wanted to taste it, he tasted it. If he wanted to smell it, he smelled it. If he wanted to build it, he built it. If he wanted to uh, have it, he had it. He lived the life that many of us have at one point or another dreamed of. He had more money, he had more women, he had more pleasure than he could, than could ever be experienced by any one of us. But listen again to how he concluded his experiment in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He says this, All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So it didn't matter how much he got. It didn't matter how much he experienced. It didn't matter because it was all futile, a pursuit of the wind. Chasing those bubbles only to have them burst when he grabbed a hold of them. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. This can sound hopeless, and it can sound a little bit depressing to us. But remember, his view is limited by things that he can see, things that he can touch, things that he can hear, things that he can smell. He is limiting his pursuit to the earthly plane, things under the sun. He limits his experience to that which can be readily available and satisfies his carnal and fleshly desires. Now, I want us to think about this slowly and carefully. If all that life has to offer us is pleasure, then Solomon's conclusion is 100% correct. If all that life has to offer us is pleasure, then Solomon's conclusion is 100% correct. But what he hasn't realized or really considered in this chapter and a half that we've looked at so far in Ecclesiastes is he hasn't considered that there is more to life than pleasure. There is more to life than things under the sun. That this earthly plane is not all that exists. The only time in all of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 that he has talked about God, he has blamed him for the fate of man. But I do want us to know that this part of Ecclesiastes that we're going to look at today does get a little more hopeful. A little less grim. But before it does, it gets a little more gloomy. So it's like we're, we're leading to something a little more exciting, but it does get a little gloomy as we continue. So if we can't find meaning in life through a pursuit of pleasure, where do we go from here? Solomon is going to take a chance to talk about wisdom. If pleasure isn't the meaning 
of life, maybe wisdom, maybe knowledge is the meaning of life. Now I want to be transparent with you for a minute. minute. I'm kind of a knowledge junkie. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that I love to learn, I love to think, I love to listen, I love to engage in conversations, and even the occasional argument. I like, <laughs> don't, yeah, I don't need that. I don't need peanut gallery conversations, Corey, uh, comments. So when I read this from Solomon about wisdom and folly, I was struck to my core. Is gaining wisdom and knowledge a pursuit of the wind? Is growing in knowledge a meaningless and vain endeavor? Because if I'm honest with you, I knew that the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of possessions was empty, but I thought myself a little superior because I pursued a nobler task of knowledge and wisdom. But here's a deep truth that is going to challenge and confront that has challenged and confronted me as I've done this study. Information does not lead to bring or to transformation. Information fails to bring transformation. Does that mean that wisdom and knowledge is bad? No. It means that no matter how much wisdom and knowledge you have, if you aren't pursuing God, it will have no meaning. It will have no true and lasting knowledge. You will not have true and lasting wisdom because it only has one source, and true and lasting wisdom's source is God Almighty. The thing about seeking true knowledge and wisdom is that you have to be able to ask the right questions, and sometimes those questions can be hard. If wisdom is what we seek, then you can't pull any punches when it comes to asking questions. And we're going to see this as we look at what uh, Solomon is looking at here in these next few verses. Now let's look at what Solomon had to say about wisdom in verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, Then I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the king's successor be like? He will do what, he has already, what has already been done. So this is a word of warning from Solomon. Verse 12 may sound f- kind of familiar to you. Solomon has said something similar to it in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, when he said, I applied my mind and examined and explored through wisdom all that had been done under heaven. God gave people this miserable task of keeping him, them occupied. Or even in verse 17 of chapter 1, he said this, I applied my mind to no wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that that too was a pursuit of the wind. So Solomon, after he pursues pleasure, he's returning to look and he's going to examine at something that he has already examined. So he's already examined wisdom. He's already examined knowledge. But he feels like if it, it needs another pass. Like he needs to know more. Maybe there's something that he missed when he was pursuing it before. Now, isn't this something that we always do? We go back to the place that where we've lost something. Maybe we go back and, have you ever lost your keys in the house, right? And you spend all day searching, and then you finally go back to that one place that you've, you swore you had already checked, and lo and behold, they are there. That's kind of what Solomon's doing. He's, he's already looked at wisdom. He's already looked at knowledge. He's already looked at, uh, at pleasures and possessions. And now he's going to go back to wisdom and knowledge. Maybe I missed something there. Maybe it is there after all. So Solomon is thinking that since God granted him with a lot of wisdom, a wisdom for the ages, some would say, maybe that would be the best place to go back and check. Maybe wisdom does have value. Maybe wisdom can shine a light on some of life's meanings. Now, in this translation in the CSB, uh, verse 12 we see this, that he's considering wisdom, madness, and folly. And it would be easy to assume that these are three category, ga- categories because of the way they're written and listed in our translations. But in fact, madness and folly go together. They're like two sides of the same coin. So there's only two categories. It's wisdom and madness and folly. These two sides of the same coin would be better understood as wisdom and mad folly. I want us to take a moment to know exactly what's happening here. 
When it comes to wisdom, there are two different kinds of wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord and wisdom that comes with practical life experience. Here Solomon is focused more on the practical life experience, wisdom that comes from practical advice and and living your life uh, to gain something. Now we'll talk more about these types of wisdom, the wisdom from the Lord and practical wisdom in just a little later. But now madness and folly, on the other hand, encompasses all of the mad folly that seems to be pursued in this world. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about madness being as bad as it can get, right? That you're doing everything that runs contrary to God's edict and his decree. So this mad folly is chasing after things that don't. You're chasing after foolishness, the foolishness of foolishnesses, if you will. So after Solomon pursued and engaged all the pleasures of the world, everything that the world had to offer, and he did not hold back at all, he goes back to the drawing board to re-engage with wisdom and folly. He wanted to look the right way, to look at the right way to live and the wrong way to live. He wanted to see, okay, wisdom may be the right way to live, Folly is definitely not the right way to live, but it's definitely pleasurable. So let's examine them both and see which one is better. Now, before he takes us to his observations about wisdom and folly, he kind of sidesteps and takes us down another road. Right? Did you catch that at the end of verse 12? He talks about his successor. And many scholars are confused about how this connects to what Solomon is driving at. How can he consider wisdom and mad folly and then focus on the king's successor? We've kind of talked about this a few weeks ago uh, in Ecclesiastes, that it's, it's a sermon of sorts. And sometimes as a pastor is preaching, he gets lost in his thoughts and says something that makes sense in his head, but can kind of confuse the people who are listening. And I'm not 100% sure that's what's happening here in Ecclesiastes, but that's kind of what it sounds like, is as he's speaking, he's thinking about something, about the fact that he has experienced all the pleasures of the world and all this stuff, and he thinks about, man, what's going to happen after me? And in fact, he's actually going to come back to this, and we'll come back to this next week, that he thinks about his successor and who's going to follow him. He reflects on the fact that nothing changes, that there's nothing new, that nothing is remembered. And at the the end of chapter 1, remember, and maybe this reflection is this exercise of looking at wisdom and folly and seeing that it's also vain. Because he may look at it, he may come to a conclusion, but that doesn't mean that the one after him, the one that follows him, will come to the same conclusion. In fact, we're going to look at this, like I said, a little more in depth next week. Here's a problem that Solomon sees. The one that comes after the king can't do anything different than Solomon has already done. If, he tr- if Solomon truly experienced all the pleasures of the world, and he didn't hold back, like he said, on experiencing them, then he would have a definitive say on the futility of pursuing pleasure. And he knows that no one will do anything more than he has ever done. The next king could surely meet and reach the heights of of Solomon's, what Solomon has done, but he couldn't do more. Solomon is acting like a concerned parent here. And it's like he's saying, learn from my mistakes. Learn from my choices. And this is true for us, right? It's like we look at our children and we see them, and they're little mirrors of ourselves, our own brokenness, and we want to shake them and we want to say, hey, don't do what I did. Don't follow in my footsteps. I did it so that you don't have to. And Solomon wants his successor to know that if he couldn't find, if if he couldn't find meaning of life in the pursuit of pleasure, then no matter how hard he tries, it's not there. It will never be there. And at the same time, he's talking to us. He's saying, I've tried it all. I did it all. And he's saying that you can never do more or better than he's done. You can never commit to it more than he's committed to it. So don't even think about it. 
Pleasure will never satisfy. It will never scratch the itch that you hoped it does. Solomon's pursuit of is proof of that enough. This is his warning to you. Pursue something better than just simply pleasure. What is that something better? Well, we know him to be Jesus. But Solomon quite isn't there yet. So he thinks maybe, maybe a better pursuit than pleasure is wisdom. Now what does he have to say about wisdom? Verse 13, he says this. And I realize that there is an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I also know that one fate becomes them both. So he sees value in wisdom. He sees wisdom's value. So there's a little glimmer of hope here in Solomon's consideration of wisdom. He sees wisdom as better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. Think about it. Up until this point in Ecclesiastes, everything, everything has been vain. Everything has been futile. Everything has been meaningless. All pursuits have been meaningless. That there is nothing worth pursuing. But here, we get a glimpse of light in the darkness. That something does matter. That something is worth pursuing. And it's interesting because of what he said back in the first chapter in verse 15. He said, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Or even in verse 18, he says, for with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. Now maybe wisdom can't straighten out what is crooked. Maybe wisdom does bring sorrow and grief. But at the same time, maybe wisdom's a better alternative to folly. That wisdom is advantageous. And the way he spells it out is in the contrast between wisdom and folly running parallel to lightness or light and dark. Right? Wisdom is like light. Why is that? The wise know where they're going. They know what lies ahead of them. They know that disasters and joy are a reality in this life. And wisdom doesn't just simply bring light. It gives us vision, allowing us to see who is wise, allowing the wise to see. Wisdom reveals the path of life. It reveals a way to live. The wise have eyes to see, to see what he is doing and where he is going. However, the foolish are walking around stumbling in the dark, not sure of the road they are on, not sure of the path that they are taking, not sure of what's going to show up right around the corner. For the foolish, or the one living in folly, he lives in darkness. He cannot know the way. He is blinded because, as Solomon says, he has no eyes to see. So we need to take a quick look at wisdom and folly or, or foolishness. We, we talked a few weeks ago in Ecclesiastes that falls in a specific type of literature in the Bible called the wisdom literature. And this is the same category that we find Job and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and some of the Psalms. In wisdom literature, it is common to contrast the way of the wise with the way of the fool. And I could go through a bunch of scriptures with you, but I'm not going to. And that's much like what Solomon is doing here. And in the Bible, wisdom is always, without exception, better than folly or foolishness. We can say it play out this way in life. Right? That the wise is always better than the fool. Wisdom is always better than foolishness. In fact, Proverbs 10.1 says this. This is one of Solomon's Proverbs. And it says, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son a heartache to his mother. So what is wisdom? Well, wisdom, especially according to the Bible, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. 
We see this in Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. See, wisdom is living in light of the instruction given by God. Living a life that honors God. Listening to his voice and obeying his commands. Living life the way that it was designed to be lived. Wisdom is the aim of Ecclesiastes. The whole book, and we see this in chapter 12, verse 13, when he says, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because this is for all humanity. So living your life in light of who God is and how he has created you to live is wisdom. So in order to be wise, you have to see yourself how God sees you, and you have to follow him. So biblical wisdom is different than earthly wisdom. Right? They're, not, they're not mutually exclusive, but if you only have earthly wisdom, then it doesn't matter if you have godly wisdom. But if you have godly wisdom, then you will also have earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is using things in this earthly realm to benefit yourself. Making decisions that are good for you and good for others, but do not necessarily glorify God. For, thi- for us on this side of the cross, those who are followers of Jesus, there is a perfect wisdom that has been put on display for all to see. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 says this, Yet though to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Chuck read that earlier. You see here that Jesus called the wisdom of God. So if you want to see wisdom in its purest and perfect form, we must look to Jesus. We must look at and imitate his wisdom. Christ being wisdom is not a foreign, con- or is not a foreign concept only found in 1 Corinthians. Rather, it's sprinkled throughout all of the New Testament. The wisdom of Christ and the way of God's kingdom works is found in the parables of Jesus. Also, Jesus is rightly seen as the creator of the universe in Colossians, and that places him as the wisdom that created all of the universe. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding Christ pours out on us wisdom so that we can know God and live the life that we are called to that we can walk in the wisdom of God when we have the spirit of God James also tells us that God is the giver of all wisdom James 1 5 says this now if any of you lacks wisdom he should ask God who gives to all generous generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him and that the wisdom of God comes from or that the wisdom that comes from God is different than the wisdom of earth. James also talks about that, that the earthly wisdom and, and godly wisdom are different. In verse three, seven, or chapter 3, verse 17 of James, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of grace and mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. That's the wisdom from above, godly wisdom. The wisdom of God and our pursuit of that wisdom will bear in us good fruit a godly life in the power of the Spirit. Godly wisdom will transform us into the image of Jesus. Chasing the wisdom of God is not a fruitless or vain pursuit. It is the reason that we exist. When we went through John's Gospel, one of the things we looked at multiple times is Jesus Jesus being light, right? Meaning that Jesus is seen as the light that pierces the darkness, or as Solomon says here, the light is better than the darkness, that he is the wisdom that makes us wise, but the fool hides from the light. 
They are chased away by his light. So the wise are those who seek after God, those who pursue God with all their hearts, with all their mind, with all their soul, and with all their strength. They are those who fear the Lord and obey his commands. Now on the other hand, the foolish are those who reject God, those who hate his instruction. The fool despises wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Or Psalm 14.1, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. They don't want the foolish, the folly, the ones living in folly, don't want anything to do with God or his instruction. They are like an insolent child who don't want to recognize God for who he, who he is. They would rather live their lives void and true, a void of truth and all lasting meaning. Now I want us to be sure that the Bible does paint a rather poor picture of the foolish. And the picture painted is one that can leave us shaking our heads and wagging our, our, our ha- fingers. No, I'm glad I'm not like those foolish people. But the truth is the Bible does at times use hyperbolic language in these circumstances. See, what God tr- is trying to reveal is not simply the actions of the foolish and the wise, but he's also trying to reveal their hearts. And even if someone is given over to folly, that may not be the full picture of foolishness that we see painted in the Bible. Their actions may not be as selfish or self-serving as the fools shown in Scripture. But nevertheless, if they haven't submitted to God's lordship, then they are in active rebellion against them, against him. So they may be generous, generous. They may be good family people. They may do the right things. They may have honesty and integrity in business. They may pay all of their taxes. They may give to charities all over the place. They may even be quote unquote good people. But even if they do all of those things and they don't recognize God's rule and reign, he would say they are fools. He would say they aren't living the wisdom given by him, but they are living the wisdom of the earth. They are doing the things that will not get them a cross look on earth, but they're forfeiting life with Jesus. And the wisdom of earth is beneficial for the things under the sun, but it doesn't benefit on the other side of eternity. Therefore, the wisest thing that someone can do is lay aside their life and follow Jesus. Submit to God and listen to him. Know that God's way is best and following him will lead to eternal life. A prize greater than anyone that we could receive here. Because the reality is we're all going to face the same fate. We're all going to face the same fate. And this one fate is going to become both the wise and the foolish. And what is that one fate? Death. And that's where Solomon shifts here in verse 14 through 16. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I also know that one fate comes to to them both. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. So why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this also is futile. For like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? Death. For the wise and for the foolish is the great equalizer. We are going to experience death unless Jesus returns soon. But for all of history, both the wise and the foolish have faced death, and neither has overcome death. 
Death is the great equalizer. That's a pretty bleak understanding. As a culture and a society, we don't often think about death. Sure, we think about it when someone we know dies or someone we love dies. Maybe sometimes when a celebrity dies. But those are all circumstances, instances and circumstances outside of ourselves. How often do you think about your own death? Because the reality is we all fall into the trap of wanting to live longer. We try to diet. We try new food trends. We try to look younger. We get some eye tightening cream, right? We got to get rid of those crow feet. Maybe, maybe if you're adventurous, you even try Botox. This is kind of funny because I was at a, a friend's house and we were watching a Christian music video before we did a Bible study. And one of the pretty famous Christian bands was on, on the YouTube w- video that we were watching. And as I'm watching the video, he just looks weird. He just looks weird. I look at him and I go, he just doesn't look right. So I'm, I'm starting to look around and look at my buddy and I say, what's wrong with that guy's face? It just kind of seems off. seems kind of plastic. It looks like he had just had Botox, and he had a really bad dye job on his hair and on his goatee. It, was just, it just looked weird. But he's trying to combat the aging process, right? He's not a spring chicken anymore, so he's trying to combat the aging process. And he's doing these different measures, whether it be Botox or he may have even been wearing makeup. I don't know. He just looked weird. He looked kind of mannequinish, if you know. Anyway, but that's the thing, right? Like, we don't want to look older. Because when we look older, that means we're getting older. And when we're getting older, that means we're closer to death. And this may be uncomfortable, and I'm not trying to be kind of flippant about it, but at one time or another, we will all die. Death is a reality. One commentator put it this way. He said, it is one thing to believe that all men are mortal, accepting the reality of death in intellectual terms. But it's something entirely different to recognize that we ourselves must die. It's easy to think about, yes, death is coming. But it's a little harder to think, I'm going to die. I'm going to not live any longer. And in my experience, this seems to be most, most present in teenage boys. Right? They are invincible. They think they're invincible. Nothing can hurt them. They have their whole lives ahead of them. And it leads to them sometimes making really, really, really Stupid decisions. Really stupid choices. I know I did it. Some would say they're even living foolishly. They don't think about death because death isn't near them. And even we older people don't often think about death. Wouldn't we be better off if we actually thought about our own death? Would it change the way that we act? Would it change the way that we think? Would it change the way that we behave? That's really what Solomon is getting at right here in this text. Does wisdom or folly really matter because wisdom will not add any more years to your life? There seems to be no lasting advantage to pursuing wisdom because we're all going to die. But we also know that being foolish can lead to an early grave. So are we going to end up in the, we're all going to end up in the grave sometime. So for many in our life, this is a reality is a absurdity. And it calls into question the, re- the meaning of life. If we're all going to die, then why don't I just be a fool? Well, the reason why is because if you're foolish, according to the Bible, that means you reject God. And you may die here on earth, but you're going to spend eternity separated from God. But if you live in the wisdom of God, and you die in the wisdom of God, and you die loving Jesus, then you will spend eternity with him. It all goes back to perspective. If you believe that all there is in this world 
and all there is in this life is the here and now, then it makes sense that all you'd want to do is pursue pleasure or be a fool. As the phrase that's been popularized over about a decade ago states, YOLO, you only live once. But that's wrong. You have eternal life if you live in Jesus. So again, the question is, why pursue wisdom if the wise are going to die like the fools? Remember, for those of us in Christ, our lives are not our own. Why do we pursue wisdom? Why do we pursue godliness? Because we have an eternal perspective. We know that life is much, much more than just this earthly plane. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or even 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 10 says this, For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with human hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put, put on our heaven, heavenly dwelling. Since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that our mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what is the purpose of wisdom if we're all, all going to die is that we make our aim to please him. We are searching after Christ. All those who are loved by God and those who love God, we seek to be who he has called us to be. Life isn't futile. Death isn't meaningless for those of us who belong to Jesus. Whether we are wise or we are foolish, we are all going to die. And even more than that, we will all be forgotten. Eventually, no one on the earth will remember our names. However, for the ones that pursue wisdom, we are going to be remembered by the one that matters. We will be remembered by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Though our family and our friends and our co-workers may forget us, Jesus never will. As we shed, and as we shed our earthly tents, we will spend eternity with him in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of his light, knowing that this life wasn't meaningless because we were saved by Jesus. But with an earthly perspective, we will miss this truth. We will see the world and its struggles, the world and its problems, and much like Solomon, we will be distressed. I want you to hear what he says in verse 17. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything is futile in a pursuit of the wind. Solomon has this struggle with life. He has a struggle with life. He sees, he sees why am I going to pursue wisdom if I'm going to die? Why can't I live foolish if I'm going to die? We're all going to die. What is the point? Do you feel how much honesty is in that statement? Here's the thing about wisdom. Wisdom allows us to see the world for how it really is. 
Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. He knew the highs and he knew the lows. He know, knew the toils and he knew the frustrations. He knew the good times and he knew the bad times. And he is distressed. But not only that, you, did you see that at the beginning? I hate, he hated life. The life he hates and the one described in the opening chapters is the one described in the op- opening chapters of Ecclesiastes. A life without the knowledge of God. A life focused on the pursuit of pleasure. A life that is empty and meaningless. That is the life that he hated. Remember, it's that key phrase in verse 17, under the sun. Everything under the sun is futile and a pursuit of the wind. And if that is your aim, if that is your goal, then you will find it meaningless and you will hate life. Think about all that Solomon had gained, all that he had worked for, the money, the houses, the wisdom, the women, everything, the gardens, the parks, those things he will lose when he meets the fate that comes to all men. When he dies, all that toil, all the struggle will have been in vain because it will all be gone. But at least he's being honest. He sees no point to any of it under the sun. And he's not afraid to say so. He knows that all that he has gained will be lost. And he's looking at it. And he's asking the question, why did I even try? What was the point of it all? And that's the thing about wisdom, both godly and earthly. It doesn't shy away from the hard questions. Wisdom isn't content with the status quo. Wisdom isn't afraid to call things as they really are. Here's the thing that I find to be true for most of the Christians that I come across. We aren't honest with God. In fact, there are many that are afraid to be honest with God. We've given in to the lie that we can't question or call out to God. That we can't share our burdens, our doubts, and our frustration with Him. We, as a culture and as a society, have lost the art of lamenting. And a lament is defined as the passionate expression of grief and sorrow. And I think one of the reasons that we've lost the art of lamentation or lamenting is because of our biblical illiteracy. Because if we actually read the Bible, if we actually study the Bible, we would see laments all over the place. In fact, about one-third of the Psalms are lament psalms. David or another author crying out to God, expressing grief and sorrow. Not only that, but there's a whole book in the Old Testament about lament written by what we would call the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. The book is called Lamentations. I saw a video from a psychologist a few weeks ago, and it struck me as odd and true. She said that children will only lash out or lose control when they feel safe. She said that a child will only tell their parents, I hate you, when they feel secure. And the reason why is because they know that no matter what they say, the truth remains that their parent is going to love them and care for them regardless of what they say. Meaning that they can express themselves openly and honestly because they trust or have faith in the love of their parent. So let me ask you, how much do you love and trust God? Do you believe that even if you cried out to him in a moment of anger, frustration, or feeling overwhelmed that he would still love you and care for you? Do you believe that you can openly and honestly communicate with God? Can you express yourself to God? 
Because believe me, he already knows how you feel and what you're thinking. You aren't hiding it from him. You just aren't being honest with him. And here Solomon shows us brutal honesty. I hated life because it felt like my life was meaningless. The life under the sun isn't always sunshine and rainbows. It isn't always good. And there is something cathartic about saying out loud to God who is near what you are actually feeling, what you are actually thinking, especially when you know that Jesus experienced everything that you experienced. He felt loss. He endured betrayal. He wept at the brokenness of the world. Jesus sympathizes with your pain, and at the same time, Jesus gives us purpose in our pain. Not only that, but when we look at the reality of death to come, we know that our death will not be in vain if we are found in Christ. So how can we live with such a perspective that we can be honest with God and that we know that there's going to be purpose in our struggles and in our pain? Paul tells us in Colossians 3, he says this, So I have been raised with Christ. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also you also will appear with him in glory. How do we live with this? How do we find meaning? We find it that Christ is our life. We died to self and were raised with Christ when we believed and trusted in him. So even though death will come to us all, life is found in those who belong to Jesus. So the question is, do you belong to Jesus? Is your life found in him? Have you repented of your sins and turned toward him? Are you pursuing him in all that you do? Is your life limited to things under the sun, this under the sun living? Is your life meaningless or do you find meaning in the life of Jesus? If you haven't to Jesus, he wants you to know that he loves you and he died for your salvation. If you're struggling with life right now, it's okay to cry out to him if you belong to him because he will comfort you and he will bring you peace. He offered you salvation. He offers you love. He offers you forgiveness. He's a dad waiting to wrap his arms around you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much that we can cry out to you. Lord, help us to realize that you know that our lives aren't all fixed. You know that our lives are broken. You know that our lives are a mess. But you love us anyways. And when we feel frustration, anger, we feel the struggle with life, Lord, we can cry out to you. And you tell us that you will comfort us, that you will love us through it. Lord, help us to pursue wisdom instead of folly. Knowing you, growing in you, chasing after you, because you are the purpose and you are the meaning of life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.